Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore the transition away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems, a circular economy. In today's episode, we're exploring what the circular economy framework has to offer to water and the challenges we face in that space. My name is Seb, and I'm the host of this podcast, and we'll be meeting two premier experts in the water field who will be describing how circular economy is a critical framework for solving a whole range of water challenges across the globe. Paul O'Callaghan and Aoife Kelleher work at Blue Tech Research Institute and helped recently to produce and film the documentary Brave Blue World. Brave Blue World is a documentary that catalogues solutions and hopes in the water space in a variety of contexts around the world, many of which are circular. And throughout this podcast, we'll be playing you many of those stories of circular economy and innovation in the water sector, um, playing you clips and stories from that film. This was originally broadcast as a live show. I'm just letting you know in case you hear any references to things you see, but don't worry, all of the stories are completely captured through the audio. My co-host Tansy Fall from our editorial team here at the Foundation and I started the conversation by asking Paul and Aoife to give us a 30-second intro to how they got into this space and their work. Sure, happy to say. Um, I think like a lot of people, I, I fell into it, it evolved. I graduated from university and headed to Malaysia, where I volunteered with the World Wildlife Fund. Working in rainforests, and my primary interest at that time, I was a biochemist, was to look at medicinal plants that could provide medicinal cures. I became fascinated with the interrelationship of water and forests and how it really was one system. That inspired me to study water. I completed a master's degree in Edinburgh and was fortunate to work at the body shop alongside Anita Roddick, who was truly a pioneer and was way ahead of her time really when it came to embracing corporate sustainability in the business. And I worked with some really, truly innovative water solutions, the living machine, which combines plants to treat the water from the manufacturing process. And ever since then, I've remained in the area, very involved in technology innovation. I established a research firm, Blue Tech Research, about a decade ago now. And we work with many of the larger water corporations, supporting them on water strategy. Um, recently completed a PhD in water innovation and um, <laughs> edit executive producer on a film which we'll speak about. So that's a little bit about my story, my relationship with water. Water, water everywhere, um, to quote Samuel Coolidge. Um, Samuel Coleridge, sorry. Um, and Aoife, where does your story kind of intersect with this? For sure. So I was, or I am an environmental scientist and I met Paul when I was in, just in the middle of my final year exams in college. And I applied for a job as a water technology research analyst at Blue Tech Research. And in the middle of the interview, I had mentioned that I had a bit of a background in scientific communications. And that's probably where one of my real passions lay, as well as research, but, you know, more so scientific communications. And Paul had mentioned to me that he was working on a documentary project called Brave Blue World. And I thought, wow, you know, this is my chance. All those hours of binge watching David Attenborough, <laughs> I've done them for a reason. So I think Paul often jokes that, you know, he probably couldn't get a word in edgeways in that interview. <laughs> but I'm uh, I'm here two years later and we have a documentary to show for it. So I guess I did something right. 
And scientific communications is this notion of how do we how do we get people to understand some of these issues? Um, because obviously, science can be quite difficult to to break into if you don't really understand the science. If you're not a scientist. Exactly, exactly. And I often think, you know, within the research community, we don't do a very good job at communicating what it is we do, why we're excited about it. And maybe that's where sometimes the gap isn't bridged, even when we talk about climate change. So to be a part of that and to help, you know, with this project for the water industry was just an absolute dream come true for me. That's really great. Um, You both have such interesting backgrounds and I can kind of see what's brought you to this this topic a little bit. So the topic of water, um, set the scene a little bit for the conversation today. For our viewers um, who might not have thought about water much before, is it a finite resource? Is it a renewable resource? Um, Why do we need to be concerned about water? Um, You know, all of our planet is blue or a lot of it is blue. (laughs) Um, Are we really in danger of running out of water? Well, I would say it's very paradoxical. The... The fact that we live on a blue planet and could run out of water is a contradiction. I have studied the works of Leonardo da Vinci, who was fascinated with these. He wrote extensively about water paradoxes, how it changes form, it changes colour, it can be bitter, it can be sweet, it can be hard, it can be soft. It's the ultimate recyclable resource. It's endlessly renewable. And many of the challenges that we have are really in how we manage water rather than having a fundamental water problem. And that's why it's tantalizing that we can solve this. It's not insurmountable, um, but it it does require us to think differently and act differently. And so with that in mind, last year, you undertook a little bit of a road trip um, together with Aoife and and some other people in your team um, to look at how forward-thinking individuals and organizations around the world are responding to some of the challenges you've outlined. Um, And that's resulted in a... Um, film called Brave Blue World. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the rationale behind making the film and who was involved and and what it's all about? Sure, I'm happy to pick up on that. and I'm sure Aoife, you'll add to it. I guess it was a chance for me to bring a lot of different things together in my life at this point. I've worked in water for 20 years. As I travel around the world, I see the problems, but I also see the solutions. And in certain areas, I could see there was a common denominator where they really get this together and they achieve incredible things places like Singapore, Israel, the Netherlands would spring to mind. And when I thought about what was it about those places, a real common denominator is that ordinary people really get it. They relate to water, they value it, they appreciate the importance of it. And once that happens, everything else becomes easy because it becomes much easier for policymakers to implement policies around sustainability, circularity, that then enables the space where technology and finance can come together and be brought to bear on the problem. And to Aoife's point on communications, those of us who are very involved in our niches, be it finance or technology or policy, we don't always tell the stories as well as it could be told. I was involved in a Discovery Series documentary a few years back, and I remember thinking, you can make this really, really engaging if you do it right. So the idea and the concept was there to tell a more positive, hopeful story as a counterpoint to the more apocalyptic doom and gloom pieces that are you know, more frequently reported in the media. And we borrowed upon the metaphor of a lighthouse in the film in that it's a way to show a path in times of danger. And we pulled together stories. Aoife was the lead researcher on this. And we researched stories all over the world. We shot in four continents, which you know, this year it would be unthinkable. So we were really fortunate with the timing. We traveled to Mexico, India, Africa, uh, 
Denmark, the Netherlands, Spain, Andalusia, a few sites in the United States as well. And along the way, we were able to bring on board a number of high profile activists, including Matt Damon, who was very kind, along with his co-founder of Water.org, Gary White, to provide us an interview at Davos. Later, Jaden Smith, as you know, a younger activist who is very passionate and motivated, support the project. Liam Neeson, uh, you know, a hero of ours, I think, kindly narrated the film and um, some of the music was provided by you too. So it all really came together quite magically and certainly was, was quite an experience and quite a journey. Water solutions aren't the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Liam Neeson. Um, there's some <laughs> recent fam famous lines from, from him. And Jaden Smith, of course, for anyone at home who's not doesn't know who Jaden Smith is, you probably know his dad, um, Will Smith, quite well. Um, and I mean, just we're going to jump into some of these the solutions. We're going to show some clips of some of the innovators that you profiled in the film. Um, going to jump into the sort of circular economy aspect of this. There might still be some viewers at home, I think, and I don't know if you have a response to this, Eva, who are thinking, but well, why is there a problem with water? What you know, what why why does it seem to link in with all these different challenges? That we talk about, and, and what is there? Is there a response? Is there an, is there an answer to that? For sure, I think that's really interesting, and it reminds me of a question that I often hear. You know, what is the link between water and climate change? You know, people think of climate and they think of heat and they think of carbon, but they never think of water. But you know, from the shirt that's on your back to the food that you consume to your everyday routine, I assume that's a showering or washing your dishes, water is involved in that process. And it's all this kind of hidden or lost water that people don't think about that really is important. So when we talk about water, we talk about how we use it, how we recycle it, how we maintain the qualities that we're not polluting, how we're maintaining a safe environment and how we can ensure that manufacturing the way we have it now will continue for years and years. And we're doing that in a sustainable way. So when people think about water problems, you know, they think, well, that doesn't affect me. I turn on the tap and, you know, the water is free flowing or people pay their water bills and, and that's maybe their relationship with it. But think of every single product that you have. If there wasn't water, there simply wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to manufacture like we do now. Water is arguably our most valuable resource, and yet it can be almost bought and exchanged for you know nothing in terms of its value in economic terms. Um, this seems like a good time to actually take a look at uh, this film and have a look at one of the innovative, innovative stories that are that's showcased in it. What you're going to see here is the story of Sanivation, where they're doing something very interesting in terms of what they do with wastewater and the value they extract from it. So take a look at this. I grew up in the slums, and growing up in the slums is you come across sanitation challenges every day. Every day when I go to bed and before I wake up, it's like, how can I make sure my brother, my sister, my cousin, who is still facing sanitation challenge has a different life. Dixon's company, Sanovation, is a truly local solution to a global problem, providing home toilets and waste treatment for 20,000 people in Kenya in an economically sustainable way. We have 126 homes that we've been serving for the last three plus years, and we are really excited to see the impact we make into these families week after week, month after month, years after years. 
Initially, we used to have a shared toilet that is used by the entire plot and it was unsafe because most people are using and it's unclean. So it's not safe for me and my children. And right now I have a blue box that I can use at any time and it's also secure because I can use it in, in the house. I'm so happy right now because my family is safe. Sanovation collects human waste once weekly, employing 98 local workers to transport these materials to their centralized treatment facility. But Dixon isn't satisfied with simply offsetting the spread of disease. He's turning waste into a windfall. Once it gets here, our first step is treating it with our technology that we just harness the sun and ensure all the pathogens are killed. After that, it goes to the next stage where we mix it with agricultural residue. And after that, we have a product that is from feces. And it can be used as a replacement for the traditional charcoal. With this charcoal, there's low carbon emission compared to the traditional charcoal. It burns three times longer than the traditional charcoal. That saves money. On top of that, for every ton of this charcoal sold, 88 trees are saved. The sale of the products we make cover the operation cost. So that makes our, our, our model very attractive and a good option to the government. So there's a few things about that story that uh, strike us as especially interesting. Um, certainly you can see the human aspect that Paul was talking about. The way in which they referred to what they referred to they collected, which you know we don't often think about human waste as a material, but they very much transformed it into material. And I guess is that where the circular economy kind of comes in, Paul, in some ways? That you know, this kind of sense of how, as you described it earlier, how do we manage water? And, and this is innovation taking place almost out of necessity of opportunity as much as, um, you know, it's, it's obviously not a secure situation. Yeah, it was, I mean, ac across all the stories we looked at, circularity runs like a thread through them. If there are two uniting themes, it really was circularity and water reuse. And that wasn't deliberate. I think that just came about as we looked at what people were doing to address these challenges. That was a really touching story. I mean, I, I, I was there, I was in that lady's home and just to see the smile on her face because they had a blue bucket. I mean, it's unthinkable for us that that would be an improvement on the situation, but for them it was. And, and then it, it went on to have this climate change aspect to it because they can avoid cutting down trees and they create an economy around that by producing charcoal. And they're doing it because if they wait for governments there, it will never happen. It's almost an unsolvable problem because it's very hard to see how they get to where we are in, in one jump because the governance structures, the finance, the, the lead-in times, it, they're not set up for it. But what they've been doing is they've been leapfrogging a little bit like the example of moving from you know, fixed line telephony to mobile phones. The same is playing out in sanitation. The Gates Foundation have been very, very active in pushing this, which ties directly to SDG 6, which ties directly to 
access to clean water because without sanitation, you can't have clean water. So it, it was a remarkable story encapsulating multiple different elements. And it was out of necessity. And it was just a different way of approaching the problem. And I think a lot of our viewers will, I mean, I think we, we had a chat about this uh, also with Tansy, you know, before the show started, uh, about how you really, when you see it and you're there, then you really start to feel it. And as you said, it's almost quite hard to understand for many of our viewers who will be living in countries or in contexts where, as Aoife described earlier, they turn on the tap and water's just running freely, um, almost, you know, infinitely, apparently. It's quite hard to understand how important innovations like that are. Um, and that's where an idea or, you know, circular solutions are so powerful because you're maximising the resource that you do have. Um, but let's quickly now pivot to another clip from the um, show that shows the challenges of water in a very different context and a context that isn't impoverished um, because in reality, these water challenges, they are existent across the world. Um, this is a clip um, talking about some of the challenges in Orange County, California. In Southern California, we have a very dry climate. We've become accustomed to a certain amount of lifestyle and water usage relying upon outside sources of water, you know, namely from Northern California and from the Colorado River through aqueducts that were put in decades ago. When we started looking forward, we knew that population was going to increase and outside sources are affected by the same drought here. The Colorado Aqueduct transports water from the Colorado River to Southern California. The transport of water is extremely energy intensive, costly, and now unable to supply California's current demands. This used to be a heavily agricultural area. It's called Orange County for a reason. It was full of orange groves, soybean fields. There's a long-time perception, not just in California, but in a lot of the U.S., that when you use groundwater, it's kind of a natural source. It's usually free from contamination. It's very good quality water. That it will just replenish itself, right? Nature will do that for you. Rain, precipitation. It'll eventually recharge itself to the point where we can just keep using it but natural precipitation is not enough. We can't rely upon nature alone. We thought, where else could we look? So there's man-made ways that we can recharge the aquifer to keep it sustainable. So that's when we thought, okay, let's take on this wastewater. Mahul's team worked hard to persuade the government that using recycled water to refill the aquifers would enable Orange County to future-proof their supplies and avoid another drought. This membrane technology is very good at removing contaminants and purifying water that was once thought and unable to be treated. The great part about putting it underground is we, we lose virtually nothing. We actually lose more when you see a large reservoir or a lake, you lose a good 5% to evaporation. You almost have a natural protective cap, keeping it free from environmental contaminants. And so it's, you know, it's kind of nature's perfect storage bowl. We kind of hit the geological jackpot by having this large natural underground aquifer that as long as we take care of it, can sustain all of our population. I introduced that clip by saying that 
the challenges are everywhere, but of course, what I should have also said is the solutions are being developed everywhere. And I guess, Aoife, that speaks a bit to what we were talking about earlier. Again, coming back to this notion, maybe you can switch on the tap and you get water, but often there's something a bit more complex underneath. And Southern California, not necessarily a place that's obviously associated with challenges water, but again, they've come up with a solution that's about, well, how do we actually manage this water effectively so that we're secure in the long term? Absolutely. And I think people look to areas of the world like California and they see them as, you know, this dream or this oasis where nothing ever goes wrong, you know. But, you know, it's often naive to assume that the rains will keep coming and replenishing groundwater and we're never going to have an issue with it. So what happened here really interestingly is I guess this is a story about water recycling. You know, they want to future proof California. They want to make sure that when they're in drought, they have water, they can supply to their people, they can continue with agriculture. But how they're doing this is they're recycling used water, essentially. So what they're doing is they're treating the water back to molecular level using technologies like microfiltration, reverse osmosis and ultraviolet radiation. So these technologies purify water to a designer level. I mean, it's the cleanest, purest water you could possibly ever have. And what they're doing is they're then recharging that water to the, the ground. So essentially they're building up the storage. So if there's a drought, they then have that water that they can, that's been recycled that they can then use. It's interesting talking about water as a recycled resource because obviously it is a finite resource um, on this planet. Um, but because in nature it's self-regulating, I think the kind of concept of reusing water, using recycled water perhaps doesn't have the kind of um, the uptake that you might expect it to to have. And did you, when you were on your um, trip for the film, did you kind of have discussions of, about that um, framing, I guess, of, of water or recycled water and reusing water? And how, how were people responding to that in the various areas that you, you visited? You know, I, I would say that the most remarkable thing about California was it was a communications project more so than it was an engineering project. They had to win the hearts and minds of people. That's what they knew. If you can't get people on board with that, you'll never get there. And I think that's what we found in Singapore. And while we were there, Ethan spent one day going to the National Archives to look at how long they've been working on communications. Maybe you can share a little bit about that communications piece, Aoife. Absolutely. So, I mean, Paul is completely right when he says this is a communication story because when people think of wastewater, and I hate using the term wastewater because even at that, you know, people start to shudder, you know, people really do think about, you know, what's in the toilet, you know, and, and they don't think about, you know, how advanced our technology and engineering and science is, you know, that they can then consume that water again. So essentially in Singapore, what they've done is they've completely re-educated the population there from, you know, the primary school level, secondary school level, you know, people who are, who are working who are a little bit older, so that they fully understand the technologies and, and the work, the energy, the time, the money that goes into treating that water. So they have absolutely absolutely no fear about consuming that water. I mean, everything from, you know, campaigns where there was posters on the streets and this dates back to, you know, a long time ago, this wasn't happening in the 2000s. You know, there was, there was posters on streets in Singapore saying, you know, this is reused water. We're going to educate our public. What is recycled water? And I think if we can begin to do that, you know, in air in within Europe, they've already done it in California and, and through communications, they've, they've been able to do it. You know, if we can start working on that on public perception, public education, then recycled water really is the way forward. 
And I guess what the film speaks to, to some extent, is that we have the, te the technology, as you just said, Paul, quite eloquently, the technology isn't the piece that we're missing. The solutions, knowing how to do this, you know, like the, how to apply it in lots of different contexts is perhaps still, a you know, still a, you know, needs to be solved in different places. But actually, we know how to do it. It's, there's something more than just the technology piece here that needs to be worked through in the case of water. And maybe it speaks to some of the things that we've been already talking about in terms of, uh, you know, how underappreciated it is maybe as a resort or not resource or maybe not fully understood. You know, Tansy's surprised at the notion of recycling water, um, which I guess is why you guys have zeroed in so much on this communications piece. Well, when we were working with the film production company, the directors and the producers and the camera people, as we went around, after a few weeks, they said, gee, so all you water guys, you're remarkably on message. Like, everyone tells us this is a solvable problem. But why then is it not solved? Why do we still have, you know, a billion people that don't have access to clean water, 2.5 billion that don't have access to sanitation? And, you know, if we don't change what we're doing, by 2030, half the world will experience water scarcity at some point during the course of a year. And it, it does come back to connecting the dots and being able to bring the technologies to bear, the finance and the policy. And perhaps that's really probably the, that was what motivated me. I mean, that was my, I got to a stage in my career where I could see that and I had the opportunity and the luxury to be able to develop that concept. And the team at Blue Tech afforded me the opportunity to be able to take a little bit of time to travel, explore those stories and bring them to bear. And, um, I think the, the way that people have got on board the project spoke to the fact that there was a broad appetite and a need for that type of message. I want to play one more clip from this film that I think maybe best exemplifies how available the solutions are. It also speaks to this notion of being inspired by nature. It's an organization, a company, a startup, I guess, called Magic Water. Um, and I, th I think you'll see very quickly why they call it Magic Water. So have a, have a look at this. When I was doing my undergraduate, I think I was tired of getting on and off waterborne diseases. So I started making my own water filter in my dorm. They kill or remove all bacteria. I started going to community with it, showing people how to make a simple filter in your house, because actually filters are not that cheap in Kenya. And in 2016, Kenya was facing a huge drought and you felt that people now didn't see filters as a solution because they actually don't have enough water to filter. The only choice here is to fetch water from the river. Children are sent to the river the whole day so they don't attend school. The water has high level of chemical contaminants. So basically you cannot drink that water. So we were looking at something specifically that is able to utilize the humidity in air. Frustrated with her own experience of watching water scarcity ravage her country, Beth looks to nature to solve the problem. Getting water from air has never been a new concept in nature. Uh, there are some uh, Namibian beetles that actually have its drinking water from the atmosphere there's six times more water in the atmosphere than there is in all rivers around the world. So that is a huge resource that is yet to be properly tapped. 
She designed a machine that extracts clean water from the atmosphere, and she calls it magic. Beth took her invention to the Ark Children's Orphanage so kids could focus on education instead of walking miles for water. These technologies are very, very simple. It works the same as the refrigerator and an air conditioner. The air is pulled in by a fan and then passed through a condenser coil. That's where the condensing happens, and then the water is dispensed to a collecting tank. We just came from a very dry season, so this was the only source of drinking water for these children. It's a security for them. As long as you have air, you can have clean drinking water. As long as you have air, you can have cool drinking water. I mean, I, I think, Aoife, what I find amazing about that story, or, or, um, or Paul, is it just shows you the sense of the possibilities. I mean, it's another quite emotive one because of the context and because of the impact. But, you know, it just, it, for me, it just sums up that notion that we have the ability to do this. Yeah, no, Seb, Seb that, that one struck a chord with me and I think with many people too. I've been working in water for 20 years, but I don't think I fully appreciated it until I was in that orphanage and I saw children. The rain had just come a few weeks before we arrived and they had collected rainwater and they were all washing their school uniforms and shirts and they were so happy to be able to do that. Um, but before the rains came, the only option they had was to generate that water from the air, uh, apart from walking many kilometres to access water from a river, which would have been quite polluted. Um, and, it, you know, it speaks to this idea of water as a material. And I know that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, you focus on this quite heavily in circular economy. Water is fundamentally a part of so much, and you know, right down to the air. There, There is more water in the atmosphere than there are in rivers and, and, uh, and, and oceans. And this is just one really creative way that people have come up with to, to harness that, which can make sense in certain situations and certainly has a, you know, a biomimicry aspect to it and and definitely embraces that circular nature of water. Uh, it seems to be that I mean there's so many great examples and I wish that we could play the whole film for everyone but they're just gonna have to <laughs> wait and, and watch it but it seems to me that you when you're talking about um, where the examples are kind of popping up it's it's through necessity um, and of course before you mentioned governance and and the kind of people not not being able to wait for um, some government actions but of course, there is a role for policymakers in making sure these innovations get to the right places um, and can be scaled up and distributed where they're needed. Um, did you see uh, a lot of action on that front or is that where more is needed or is it a little bit of both? It's a chicken and an egg scenario. You know, you, you, need, you need solutions and then you need people to want those solutions and be open to them. The job of the policymaker becomes so much easier uh, once people are positive about the policies. You know, policies which are punitive are not popular. Policies where people in California right now are experiencing wildfires, devastating the environment, they are much more open to anything that will reduce carbon emissions. You know, it's got a real positive for them. And I, I think if you can frame these things in such a positive way that people want these things to happen and will it into existence, then you're, ha you're well over halfway there. Um, we have a ways to go for sure, but I, I do think there, you do sense there's a sense of optimism from the people that are active that 
it's solvable. And I think maybe we're, unfortunately, we've really used up our time, maybe even pushed our time a bit. But um, my final kind of question, and maybe you want to take it first, Aoife, but chip in, Paul, is it feels like one of the biggest challenges, at least just my observation from this conversation with water, is that it's, it's a global challenge. It's something that's felt globally, but the solutions tend to have to be quite localised. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a silver bullet for solving the issues around water. It depends on the context. It depends on the people, as you were just describing. And I, and I guess, is the value of the circular economy that it can be a kind of, it is kind of a framework or a way of thinking that can be applied to lots of different contexts as people kind of tackle these challenges around the world? Absolutely. I think that's one of the, the number one learnings that I had when working on this project was that I studied environmental science. I understood a lot about water at a global level. But through working on this film, I realized that really, in essence, it is a local issue and that location by location, people are coming up with solutions. And absolutely, the circular economy has a massive role to play with that. Whether there, I mean, there's another example in the documentary that is with the industrial group and they're manufacturing textiles. So one of the things that they're doing in their operations is they're recycling the water and they're recovering the salt from the process, which can then be used as a raw material to help in the dyeing over and over and over again. So that's just another example example of you know where that approach that circular thinking you know really does work you know and it can be applied to industry it can be applied in, in sanitation's case with with sanitation issues that they're trying to solve in Kenya um, and also at a, at a house level I mean we have examples in the documentary as well which really do ring that circular economy bell where we're recycling water within a home so I absolutely believe that you know it's, it's a fantastic framework in terms of your your thinking and actually having said that was my last question um and having said that we're running out of time, I'm going to ask one more question. That Paul, the documentary. I mean, you've worked. You said you've worked in water for twenty years. The documentary is a hopeful story. Are you hopeful? Oh yeah, no, I am. <laughs> um, no, genuinely, I, I, I think we see tremendous cause to be hopeful. You know, to be quite honest, and I'm not being glib in saying that. I know it's easy to be optimistic, but um, if I look at the commitments that I'm seeing coming from major corporations, um, Intel, Pepsi-Cola, L'Oreal, um, Amazon, others, to become water neutral and net water positive by a certain date and time, and you know they can do it. You know, if they set their mind to it, it will happen. And groups like Intel have already achieved those goals and gone past them. So that's what gives me cause for hope. It's when I see major groups like that making those commitments, putting them into practice, I do think that in 10 years' time, we will be surprised by just how much ground we've, we've covered. Um, there'll be more to do, but I, I do think we'll be surprised by how much ground we've covered. So we've heard how impactful solutions to water challenges can be, and we've heard a lot about the local versus global dynamic that we face in the water sector. And I'd kind of finish on the point that Aoife made about the way that Circle Economy Framework can help to be a, can be applied across this range of sectors as a guiding set of practices and principles in different contexts. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. Um, do subscribe, like, rate, comment wherever you're listening to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe. <laughs>